The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks your climate-focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and I'm officially counting down the days until I get to go to Maine. I won't tell you how many that is, thus timestamping the episode, but I will say in less than two months, I will be in my beloved home state. Today's guest is in the middle of discussions on a carbon border adjustment mechanism, CBAM, as we call it. Greg Bertelson is the CEO of the Climate Leadership Council, which has been front and center producing case studies on the benefits of pricing carbon on imported goods. Listeners, you have heard Katrina Rourke from the council on the show a few times, talking about her excellent trade and climate research and analysis. Greg is going to give us a little bit of the Hill perspective, including thoughts about the recently introduced Prove It Act and how bipartisan support coalesced around the CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. Before joining the council in 2017 as an executive VP and then taking the reins as CEO in 2020, Greg previously served as Senior Director, Energy and Resources Policy at the National Association of Manufacturers. He's also served as a regulatory analyst for at Siemens, where he advised Fortune 100 industrial and utility companies on energy and environmental policy. In 2016 and 2017, he served as an official advisor to the EPA on environmental justice issues. Listeners, Greg Bertelson is coming up next. Welcome back, listeners. Super excited to be in conversation today with Greg Bertelson. Greg, can I call you Mr. Seabam? <laughs> Welcome to the show. Hey, Chelsea. Great to be with you. Nice to chat with you this afternoon. Yeah. So I feel like we have reached this tipping point with the carbon board, carbon, oh my God, carbon adjustment border mechanism, CBAM. I got that right, right? It's Friday afternoon listeners. So um, anyway, I feel like now every day I read something in the paper about it or in, you know, the inside the Beltway news that we all get in our inbox. And that is super exciting. And, and the Climate Leadership Council has played such a critical role in advancing this policy mechanism. I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit. How did you guys become the go-to people for the key champions on Capitol Hill who are pushing CBAM forward? Yeah, it's it's an exciting time to be working in this space. And it maybe wasn't isn't shouldn't be surprising that we're in the moment that we are. Shouldn't be too surprising that we're seeing interest from both sides of the aisle, from members of Congress representing different kinds of states and constituents. Because what's unique about this particular set of policies uh, and the sets of policies we're talking about are policies that apply some form of a fee at the border based on the carbon emissions it took to make those goods, is that the potential benefits span climate benefits to economic benefits to U.S. geopolitical interests. And as we have seen in the still relatively early days, 
have the potential to unite a really unique coalition of interests around these around these suite of policies. And so you asked how we got into it. Well, we've been doing work around market-based climate policies since our organization was founded in 2017. And our belief has always been that we need a global economy that rewards lower carbon activities, lower carbon manufacturing, uh, and creates uh, an incentive structure for everybody everywhere to be competing to lower their emissions. And this suite of policies to us is a really just got a lot of potential to have a very large lever of influence over global economic activity. A tremendous amount of embodied emissions cross international borders. And if we have the right incentives in place at international borders, we'll be creating a really big incentive in a lot of different industries across most of the world to decarbonize. I mean, I just think it's so elegant and it's so smart. And, you know, I think about, um, you know, this is going to sound really um, negative, but like cheap goods from China, right? We've all gone to Amazon and you bought something that maybe you didn't need. And, and the idea that, and, you know, when I'm thinking about cheap goods from China, it actually just triggered in a little bit of my brain, some of those um, labor arguments um, that I'm not a labor expert, but labor unions being worried that um, with the environmental regulations and so forth that we require on manufacturing in the U.S. that we would, you know, offshore manufacturing abroad, especially to countries like China. And I feel in a way like if we are going to embed the price of carbon in the goods that are crossing our border, it gives a competitive advantage to U.S. manufacturers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it it reverses what some people have described as a race to the bottom, mm-hmm. right? Where production searches for the absolute lowest cost place in the global economy. And often that results in, or that at least historically at times has resulted in manufacturing going from parts of the world with high labor standards and higher environmental standards to parts of the world with lower environmental standards and lower labor standards. And to us, that's a market failure. And so what this policy um, approach does is it creates a race to the top. It creates an incentive structure where the where global production is more likely to take place in the parts of the world that do it the cleanest, that do it while emitting the least amount of carbon. And it just so happens that the United States is among the most carbon efficient economies in the world and considerably more carbon efficient than, uh, well, for example, than China or Russia or a number of other uh, countries of interest, I'll, I'll, I'll call them. Yeah. And that's part of what makes this approach um, or gives this approach so much potential for political support because we're pursuing a different strategy to address climate. Part of the strategy in this approach relies on bringing more manufacturing, incumbent industries like steel and aluminum and chemicals back to the United States 
as a strategy for global decarbonization. And that's just a different way of thinking about it. And it's a different approach. But the, the outcome that we're seeking is the same, which is to, to lower global emissions. So last week, the, the Prove It bill was introduced. And do not ask me to do that acronym on a Friday afternoon. I did just realize that in our intro, I said C-A-B-M, not C-B-A-M. But listeners, you will forgive me. Um, the Prove It Act was a measure introduced, um, bipartisan measure introduced by Senators Coons and Kramer. Is that correct? Coons and Kramer? Yes. And and I'm interpreting this as a study that's sort of like the first step. It's step one in a way to prove everything that you just said, that the U.S. has very low embedded carbon in its um, manufactured products and that just to sort of show that that something like a CBAM isn't, we aren't penalizing ourselves by imposing or implementing one. That's the way I read it. You might have a different interpretation as someone who probably worked on that bill. Well, first was really encouraged to see Senators Kramer and Coons come together and release the bill. I think it's really important for folks to understand and recognize that this legislation, which instructs the Department of Energy to do an analysis of the comparative carbon efficiencies of the U.S. economy and a number of other countries around the world uh, to determine how we compare as a country to our competitors, to our allies in several different industries. And I believe this kind of a study, this kind of information is exceptionally useful for our policymakers across the board, and will have application for policies across the board. Right. This is information that our members of Congress should know. Yeah. They should know this data. And so from a good policymaking standpoint, in any arena in energy policy, in any arena in climate policy, in any arena in trade policy, this is information we want our lawmakers armed with. Mm-hmm. And so I think it ultimately has many different um, uses in a policymaking context. For the policies that my organization is most worked on, the policies that we're talking about today, uh, yes, there is certainly a use case for it, um, which is ultimately what we're proposing is to adjust goods that come into the country mm-hmm. based on the carbon intensity it took to make them, and we need a starting place. Yeah, uh, And this study could serve as that starting place. But I'll like just give you one other exactly a baseline. And with time, we know information and data will improve. And as we've heard in conversation with some of the legislative champions of these approaches, there are policy design options that would allow individual manufacturers and in countries to demonstrate through verifiable data that they're performing better than their country average. But this could be a really important starting place. But another thing that I've heard among lawmakers who perhaps aren't necessarily thinking about this in use as a future U.S. border policy are tends to be on the Republican side of the aisle, but members who are watching with interest and perhaps for some of them concern over the EU developing their CBAM, yeah. their carbon border adjustment mechanism, recognizing that once implemented, it will be applied to U.S. goods. And the determination for how to apply that charge will be 
established by EU lawmakers. Now, those are our allies. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I've heard among Republican members of Congress is, well, we should have an opinion as to what that math is. And so for that purpose, as as, as other countries develop their policies, we should have an opinion about our carbon efficiency. So again, just a couple of examples, but ultimately I think something like the Prove It Act and the study that would result, it's only going to help at the end of the day in forming better policy. I'm Price Atkinson. You know me as producer as well as host Chelsea Henderson, sidekick here on the Eco Right Speaks. But I'm also Republican.org's communications and program director, and we want to work with you. Interested in having our executive director, Bob Inglis, participate in one of your events locally? Are you looking for a guest speaker on the Eco Right to talk with the organization virtually? The name of the game for us is speaking to and communicating with fellow conservatives on the issue of climate change. Let us know if you're planning an event or interested in Bob or one of our team members, panels, keynotes, informal fireside chats. We're experienced and versatile in different event styles and settings. Contact me, Price, at Republican.org if you've got an idea. Thanks for listening. And now back to this week's episode. You know, I've worked on Capitol Hill and you work with Capitol Hill daily. Sometimes you see measures being moved or being proposed and, you know, you don't always know what the unintended consequences might be of something. And so putting that analysis and that time into um, the development of the policy, just, I mean, we know, you know, (laughs) Climate Leadership Council has done a number of of case studies. I mean, you know where these numbers are going to fall, but to have, you know, the proof is in the pudding. So the name says it all, right? The Prove It Act to have those numbers and to be able to say, this is where we are, this is our baseline, I think does inform the future CBAM as it, you know, hopefully becomes implemented. Um, I wanted to pivot for a second to your relationships with Capitol Hill, because, you know, I think there is definitely a a perception in the nation that, you know, we're super polarized and there are elements, arenas and topics on which we are. But here you are really navigating this very bipartisan um, piece of policy. And I would just love for you to share with listeners a little bit about what that process looks like. How did you make your initial outreach? How did you get senators, especially and I, you might be working the House side too, we read more obviously about the senators that are leading on this effort, but you know, w- with all the distrust that is uh, sort of feels um, in the atmosphere right now, how were you able to kind of bring folks together and maintain that balance so that nobody's thinking, oh, Greg's, he's their guy, not my guy. It seems like everybody trusts you. You're getting lots of accolades from both sides of the aisle. And I just would love to know your secret, I guess. Well, I pre- appreciate that, Tia. It's nothing too complex or, uh, and there are certainly many other organizations who follow this model, but I'll try to say it efficiently, which is one, we're very straightforward about what we support and what we promote. And now that here comes a bias statement, but, uh, you know, what we support and promote is um, quite logical. Um, It's backed by a lot of data and research and, and our objectives are, very much in line with, I would argue, most members of Congress, which is we want to promote policies that improve the environment. We're focused on climate, so we want to promote policies that lower global emissions. Um, We have a particular interest in seeing these policies be 
um, efficient in their um, in their operation, and also in seeing them be beneficial to uh, the U.S. economy, U.S. workers, U.S. communities, and with that as our objectives, um, it's easy to start with a lot of common ground. We've done a lot of different work, and not everything we do, everybody who we have good relationships with agrees with, but. We, we, we are very intentional about not being uh, bombastic in our language. Um, we are very thoughtful in trying to find areas where we agree. And if, uh, if there are offices that, uh, for which we have enough alignment on you know, enough things, you know, we can develop strong relationships and, um, and, and work together. And so that's that's part of what's allowed us to, uh, you know, have some really great relationships on both sides of the aisle. On this issue in particular, it helps too. Um, so it's not just all of our charm, uh, right, that uh, has led to, um, you know, the development of some really valuable relationships for us. It's the this particular policy set. Yeah. Um, and I've talked about it uh, sort of already, but uh, you can – you can come to this issue purely with an interest in climate. That could be your only interest mm-hmm. and find a policy set that would have a massive impact or establish a massive global incentive for lowering emissions. You could come to this issue set only interested in the U.S. economy, only interested in seeing the U.S. economy flourish, only interested in seeing sectors across our country do well, workers benefit, and find a set of policies that you support? Or do you come to this issue set purely with a U.S. geopolitical interest in mind and find a policy that will benefit the U.S. and, you know, in some extent, to some extent, at the, at the expense of, 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 of a country that many of our lawmakers are very focused on, um, which is China? The truth is all of the lawmakers who have gravitated towards this space support all of those objectives to some extent you know where they are on the spectrum or which they value most varies but that's what's been the most helpful for us in finding really constructive collaborators on the hill um it's that we're working on a policy that achieves their their objectives you know their priorities so if you had to guess do you think the CBAM happens this Congress? Do you think we're another Congress away? Do we need the Prove It Act? I'm not sure how long, you know, obviously it would have to pass. And then there's some period of time it would take to do the analysis. Do we have to wait for that to be done before we can start the ball rolling on passing a CBAM? Are they, you know, or can they be concurrent um, policies? So I'll start with your last question first. So, so no, we do not need to wait for the Prove It Act to implement a, a CBAM and I should also note um, for listeners, we, we, we use CBAM as a shorthand, but included in this shorthand and in this policy suite is not just the U.S. applying a fee at its border, but the everybody involved in this discussion on the Hill is looking at this set of policies as a way to create cooperation with our allies mm-hmm. to form some kind of an alliance with uh, like-minded countries to establish a similar policy around all of our borders. So that's just an important point to make. But 
But no, we don't need the Prove It Act to, to get started. This, the implementation and evolution of this suite of policies is going to involve starting with the best available information we have and with time, data, and information is going to improve. The Prove It Act will be part of that process, but we could get started today with the yeah. CBAM yeah. um, if, it, if, 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 if folks were so inclined. In terms of the legislative prospects in this Congress, I mean, here's what I've been saying. You know, we're uh, hopefully this doesn't uh, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll timestamp our conversation. It's, uh, you know, it's mid-June 2023. The presidential cycle is getting uh, up and running. Yep. We just had a big debt ceiling um, debate and passage. We know we've got um, appropriations bills coming. I would handicap any big legislation, any big policy in any arena in this Congress um, as as facing a, hup, a uphill climb. Um, and this is certainly a big policy. Yeah. Um, and so there's an uphill climb. So I, I can't, you know, I, I, I wouldn't on this show predict that this is going to be the Congress that it that it um, that it passes. I will note, and this is something we've all experienced, that things often seem far off and then come together all at once. So I also won't predict that it won't happen. Um, But my assessment of where we are in this, in this policy development is um, we're in a stage in which we're going to see a few different ideas come out. And I think that's great. I I really do. We're going to see a, we're going to see concepts from Republicans. We're going to see concepts from Democrats. There will be pros and cons. I'm sure of, of all of them. And uh, and we're also seeing a growing number of stakeholders in corporate America, in the environmental community, in the labor community, start to get really focused on this po- in this policy sweat. And so as space, so as these ideas come out, as these stakeholders get more and more engaged, um, it's only going to result in the development of better and better policy. So I think ultimately we do get there. I think it is inevitable. I think it's impossible to imagine uh, a path to addressing climate change meaningfully without incorporating trade policies like this. Um, and so really encouraged by the, the early stages of this discussion. And so, you know, we'll see how, uh, how things develop over time. Well, Greg, we appreciate the work that you and your whole team at Climate Leadership Council, our good friend Katrina Rourke, obviously have to mention her, everything you all are doing to move the ball forward. And I just look forward to opening up my inbox every morning and seeing more news about this. So thanks for making good news. You know, you don't always get good news to read. And every time I see that you've advanced the ball a little bit more, you know, I think just by having the conversations in this marketplace of ideas, you are advancing the issue. And um, here at RepublicIan.org, we really appreciate the work you're doing and your time coming on the show today. Well, thanks so much for having me. And uh, and also thank you for the partnership with Republican Bob Inglis, uh, as your listeners know, is... Um, about as good as it gets, one of the most sincere people uh, you'll meet in this town. And so it's been one of the many uh, pleasures of, of working in this job has been getting to know Bob, uh, Bob Moore and watching a guy who just has always done it the right way. And Chelsea, it's been great to get to know you as yeah. well. So thanks for having me on and, uh, you know, onward. Rice, we are almost at the end of season six. I almost said season three because it's unbelievable to me that we are just about done with season six. The finish line is 
very, very near. <laughs> yes, it is in sight. And that in sight, that finish line is next week. It is where we will bring our new traditional um, best of series that we do where we take clips from um, different episodes of the season, things that particularly resonated with us and with you, our listeners. So if there's something that you feel really strongly about, um, let me know. Let me know that you want that um, that quote or that segment to be included and we will do our best. But yeah, it's uh, it's really exciting. Exciting. It is a sampling of all the a lot of guests, not all the guests, but of a lot of the guests that we had during season six. So uh, while we had some great interviews, uh, they, whatever reason, may just not be on the best of, but it's just kind of a uh, a kaleidoscope of voices that you heard on this season. And that's how we're going to wrap it up before season seven coming up later this summer, which will launch. On a Tuesday, as we always do, a new episode dropping, and that we will let you know via social media when that will be, Jels. That's right. Um, we're going to take a little break, and we're going to put together our list of season seven guests. At least I try to have you know the first four or five lined up before we start um, recording. And you know what? You will have a chance if you've missed any past episodes to catch up on them. And if you are up to date, maybe re-listen to one of your favorites or just take a break. We're fine with that. We are going to take breaks, right, Price? We are. We're going to take a break. I know that you're going to take a break to Maine once or twice. Uh, go home. Jealous reigns supreme here as you'll eat some good old uh, Maine lobster. Well, we, we'll we'll recharge our battery a little bit as we get ready for season seven that will be launching in late July or early August. We will, again we will we will announce that via our social platforms: Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Republic En at Republic En. Now to today's episode, I really. Yep enjoyed that conversation with Greg Bertelson. He's so passionate. He's so knowledgeable and strategic. I just think he's like got that perfect blend of all those elements. And that is what has made him and the Climate Leadership Council so successful. They lean in on the facts. They they rely heavily on their excellent research, which we know um, Katrina Rourke is a big part of. And so, yeah, it's um, it was really a pleasure to to get to know him through that conversation. Yeah, and my biggest takeaway, while he would not say, or, or I guess wouldn't say, he wouldn't predict whether it be this Congress or the next one where we might have you know CBAM legislation. What I took away was is that we are close, is that we are getting much closer. And as, as you know, I know, Greg knows, and many, most of our listeners know that we have to have that trade element um, when it comes to uh, climate legislation. And that's this is just the thing to do it. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, um, while he didn't call it a CBAM when he got into the climate taxing um pool, so to speak, mm -hmm. our executive director, Bob Inglis, has always said that that is the missing, you know, that is an important piece of pricing carbon is that you have to have this um, way to account for, you know, the carbon leakage, the um, making sure that other countries are doing the same. And the best way to do that is to financially penalize them if they're not, because at some point those countries are going to be like, hmm, we can keep like 
paying this carbon tariff or this tax or this fee or whatever people want to call it, or we can just fix our own carbon problem. And so, you know, I think it is a good, it's a, it's a good way to, to bring other nations to the table. Yes, 100%. We all agree on that. And we agree that uh, now would be a great time for you all to stand with us at Republican.org, which you can do online again, Republican.org forward slash join. And shout out to some new members, Gene M. in New Jersey, Marjorie E. in California, Bob F. in Texas, Regina C. in Idaho, and Larry S. in Indiana. Again, we'll be taking a a brief hiatus uh, as we are between seasons, but if you're listening to this whenever this is, it's always a great time to stand with us because there is a power in numbers and we need you, especially if you are a conservative. Right, Chelsea? That's right. You matter. You make a difference. Your voice makes a difference. And uh, maybe you're listening to this and you aren't conservative, but you know somebody who is. Share the podcast with them. We want this to work for everybody, but really it's those conservative ears that we're trying to reach. So spread the word. We're out here and, um, you know, climate is something that the majority of Americans care about and it's okay. It's okay to admit that you care about climate change. It is okay. It is okay. This is a safe space. This is a, (laughs) yes, we certainly do. But Chelsea, until next week, as we barrel toward the finish of season six, Have a great week. Talk to you then. Thanks, Bryce. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.